Uh, good evening, everyone. On behalf of the University of Sydney and the Provost, Professor Stephen Garten, I'd like to welcome you tonight to the University of Sydney and the Sydney, University of Sydney Sydney Ideas event, which is being held in partnership with the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Um, and together we're hosting this year's Keith Hancock Lecture. My name is Marion Baird. I'm Professor of Gender and Employment Relations in the University of Sydney's Business School. I'm also a Fellow of the University of Sydney Senate and in that capacity, I'm welcoming you here tonight. And um, I'm also proud to say I'm a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences, so there's some nice linkages there. Before we begin tonight's proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university and tonight, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Now my role tonight is actually very brief and I've almost completed it. Um, the only other thing I have to do really is introduce the wonderful Emeritus Professor Peter Spirit. Peter is Chair of the Public Forums Committee of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and of course he spent a wonderful few years here as an undergraduate at the University of Sydney and we like to think that it was from there that his wonderful career um, emerged so Peter, I'd like to welcome you to um, formally introduce our speaker and tonight's um, Keith Hancock lecture. Thank you. Thank you, Marion, for that welcome and thanks to all of you for coming. It's very pleasing to see a number of fellows of the Academy of Social Sciences here tonight including somebody who I think could be correctly described as a veteran economist in the form of Jeff Harcourt. The Academy of Social Sciences is very happy to collaborate with Sydney Ideas for this lecture tonight, and it has let, led me to think about ideas nomenclature. You can't really imagine a forum called Queensland Ideas, or perhaps you can, and New, New South Wales ideas sounds a bit sort of clumsy, doesn't it? Uh, the only other thought I'd had, though, is that if you had a forum called Victorian ideas, it would at least have a kind of nostalgic sort of <laughs> ring to it, wouldn't it? The Keith Hancock lecture is named after another economist, apart from our speaker tonight, Meredith Professor Keith Hancock, who's been a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences since 1968, and he was president of the Academy in the early 1980s. And intriguingly, he's only one of two Australians who are honorary fellows of the London School of Economics. Keith was Foundation Professor of Economics at Flinders University, which opened for teaching in 1966. Now, Murray, does there are questions tonight. Does Macquarie open for teaching in 65 or 66? It was, yeah, but it was the interim year when we went from the Wyndham scheme to the higher school certificate, I think. Right. 
1980, um, Keith Hancock became the third Vice-Chancellor of, uh, of Flinders University, and he then went on to be Deputy President of the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. Now, our speaker tonight, Richard Dennis, with two N's and two S's, Richard, so your surname must be misspelt as often as mine. See, <laughs> he's Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. Now, as you'll appreciate, the Conservatives in Australia have always ha had very well-funded think tanks, and one of them actually stole the title Sydney for their think tank, i.e. the Sydney Institute. So, thank goodness the University of Sydney has captured Sydney ideas. And, of course, we've got the Menzies Institute, the Institute of Public Affairs, etc., etc. Richard, has, has, as I said, is the Chief Economist for the Australia Institute, which fortunately managed to claim the national title. He's an adjunct associate professor at the Crawford School of Economics and Government at the ANU, and he is well known for his ability to translate economic issues in everyday language, although he still publishes in academic journals. I don't suppose we can blame him for that. But much more admirable, in my view, is his fortnightly column in the Canberra Times and writing for the Australian Financial Review, because at least, unlike the academic journals, they're not hidden completely behind paywalls. He is the co-author with Clive Hamilton of the marvellously titled Affluenza. I mean, that's a great book title. Think about it, Affluenza. And his latest book is called Econobabble, and Econobabble will come up shortly. That's, that's your hashtag tonight if you want to start tweeting in furious agreement or even in uh, disagreement. So I invite Richard Dennis to uh, give the Hancock Lecture entitled A Model of Confusion. Richard. Thank you um, very much for, uh, uh, for the warm introduction and uh, uh, for coming out to hear me tonight and, of course, to the organisers for inviting me. Um, last night I, I gave the, the first instalment of the Keith Hancock oration in Canberra uh, and uh, it's a little warmer here in Sydney tonight. So, um, but uh, a, a great crowd and thanks for coming out. Um, let me just start by uh, acknowledging the incredible contribution that, uh, that Keith Hancock made to uh, not just the Australian economics community, uh, but to Australia's society through his not just academic work, but, uh, but work uh, in our industrial relations system, uh, a system which, while imperfect, uh, did much more to uh, reduce the gap between uh, the rich and poor in Australia than subsequent iterations of our industrial relations system has generated or indeed other countries uh, have managed to achieve. And uh, Keith was at the, uh, uh, the address last night and, uh, that was, and we went out for dinner afterwards, which was wonderful, and uh, I had the good fortune to bump into one of his sons here tonight. Uh, I don't know where Ben is now, but it um, uh, makes me very happy that uh, the Hancock family can be here tonight. So uh, what I want to talk about tonight is uh, uh, a rather strange topic, perhaps, particularly for a public address. I want to talk about the, the rather uh, technical and uh, often dry and complicated uh, world of economic modelling. 
But the reason I want to talk about it to, uh, to an audience like this is because while the, 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 the black box of economic modelling might be hard to get your head around, the, the consequences of what's in those models uh, are there for all to see. We must cut the corporate tax rate. We must. How could we not? The economic modelling suggests it will deliver a growth dividend. And who could oppose a growth dividend that the model says we can have? What's in the model? Oh, that's a bit complicated. What, are, what assumptions is it based on? Oh, you don't need to worry your heads about that. Unfortunately, and this is the point that I want to expand on tonight, economic modelling has actually come to replace a lot of what was once just thought of as economic debate, where at least you could hear people express what their arguments and indeed maybe their evidence was, or democratic debate about, well, what kind of society do we want? Why are we voting for this policy? Is that the kind of policy that I think my country needs more of or less of? Modelling has for many years now kind of sucked the oxygen out of both economic debate and I'd argue democratic debate. So whether you're an economist or not, whether you're an economic modeller or not, economic modelling has come to play a role in your life, whether you noticed it or not. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some examples of that. But before I do, again, just to, to reflect on, on Keith Hancock's contribution, as you heard in the introduction, uh, Keith became a member of the Academy in 1968. Now, you might not believe this, because I know I look very young, uh, but I, I wasn't born when Keith became uh, a member of the Academy. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he, as I understand it, was president of the Academy from 1981 to 1984 which is interesting uh, for a number of the points I want to make tonight. One is uh, that's about the period in which I started high school. Uh, and it's also 1984, uh, a period which we often hark back to these days as being this kind of golden era of economic reform, this mystical time where uh, our, our political champions could take on vested interests and drive reform through... Uh, through, through parliaments, <clears throat> excuse me, and through public debates. Now, that's a bit, uh, bit misty-eyed for my reading of it, but I do think that back in the 80s, back in that Hawke-Keating period, there was a capacity to combine ideas and political strategy and public communication in ways that actually saw sequential reform over a period of time, by the way, I thought many of the reforms were crap myself. Um, it's not the point I'm making. The point is it was apparently this genius uh, and this golden age being able to do that. And let me just highlight something simple. When we floated the dollar in 1984, there was no economic modelling getting waved around. One of the biggest changes to our economy in my lifetime in terms of the, the opening up of, uh, of the Australian economy to the world economy, that decision was based on argument. It was based on public debate. There was economic theory behind it. There were pragmatic reasons to do it. There were indeed political reasons to do it. But to be clear, those big reforms were not driven through a public debate by someone waving a fat modelling report around. 
Now, as I'll expand later, I think that that was an asset for the advocates of policy. I think they were more able to persuade the public to go with them on their reform journey, more able because they didn't have economic modelling. But uh, I want to use that time period now to get you thinking, all right, let's imagine we did have economic modelling back in 1984 and we'd gone to KPMG or Acel Allen or maybe Treasury did it themselves. It's very exciting choosing a modeller. Come back to how we do that later. Let's imagine we're back in 1984 and we're modelling the consequences of floating the dollar for the Australian economy in 2016. We've got the best modellers in the world, we're spending millions of dollars. Imagine we're back in 1984 modelling the impact of a floating dollar on the Australian economy in 2016. How many mobile phones do you think there would be in 2016 in the 1984 modelling? None. How many people would be employed in the internet industry? The which what? It's impossible to predict the future. Of all the people who are crap at predicting the future, my profession is at the top of the list. <laughs> we have no capacity whatsoever to predict the future. Now, we're not unique in lacking this skill, but we are unique in being paid to pretend to have it. <laughs> now, we do have some good tricks, and I want to talk about our good tricks tonight, because I actually think economics is important. I think economics is useful, done well. But our main trick when it comes to modelling the future of the economy is to project from trend. So what that means is if things are going in a straight line at a particular trajectory, we like to think it will, and this is complicated, we like to think it will keep going. <laughs> you with me? Okay. I know you haven't all done an economics degree, so sorry about this. When we project from trend, we think things should keep going like that. So, of course, in 1984, when we try to project, if we'd have bothered, what the economy would look like in 2016, we've basically projected what the economy was looking like in 1983, maybe going all the way back to 1973, and then we might use our judgment, our judgment as economists, to kind of think, well, which parts of the economy do I think a change in the exchange rate might have more or less effect of? And some of them might grow a little bit faster. Some of them might grow a little bit slower. There's nothing in any economic model we have today, let alone back then, that could have said, oh, and then around the mid-90s, this internet thing will come up, and in the early 2000s, these smartphone things will pop up. We have no capacity to do this. Yet, knowing that we don't know anything really about the substantive future, We've participated in what I think is a farcical debate about intergenerational reports and what Australia will look like in 2050 if nothing changes. <laughs> it's a really interesting question to ask, isn't it? That's why Peter Costello was such a good treasurer. He said to Treasury, could you go and project out for 50 years what Australia would look like if everything kind of 
stayed the same, but got a bit bigger. We have no capacity to do this. But, of course, the intergenerational report then allows us to say, and if everything stays the same and nothing changes, we'll all be like Greece. We'll be like Greece. What's that even mean? Greece was a nice place a few years ago and will probably be a nice place in 50 years' time. So economic modelling has been, you know, there's plenty of economists and plenty of politicians that are are happy to play along with this, but we don't know how to predict the future. Our models don't predict the future. They actually predict the past. They just take the past and they push it out as if nothing much is going to change. Now, let me be clear, I think that economic models have an important role to play, both in the discipline of economics and in helping the rest of the community get their head around how some things might work. But might work is entirely different from will happen. And economic models are, by definition, a model is a simplification of reality. A model seeks to distill the complicated system, pull the main bits out, and then help you understand how the things work together. The fact that a model has simplifications in it is not a criticism of the model. We have to direct our criticism at the people that use simple models inappropriately. So let me give you an example. Did anyone here... Oh, good, I've got a pen. uh, Did anyone here uh, do high school physics? You know, year 11, year 12 physics. Yeah, a few hands. Remember all the kind of simple physics with cannonballs getting fired in vacuums and, you know, if you knew the initial velocity of the cannonball and the angle of the cannon, you could kind of predict where the cannon would land. Is this ringing a bell for anyone? Really simple version of physics. And the vacuum is designed to say, don't worry about air friction, and the cannonball's designed to say, look, it's spherical, don't worry about air friction. It's a very simple model. But as a simple model, it's still really handy. You look like you're nodding off. Can you catch? (laughs) You can catch. Chuck it back. Oh, terrible throw. (laughs) This pen doesn't look at all like a sphere. It doesn't look like a cannonball. But we can use simple Newtonian physics. (laughs) It won't hurt. We can use simple Newtonian physics to kind of get a sense of how hard should I throw the pen and what angle should I throw it at. So you don't, it doesn't have to, the Newtonian physics of how things fly it doesn't have to be a perfect depiction of reality to be useful. But the fact that Newtonian physics is pretty good for a pen, it's hopeless for paper aeroplanes. And here's the... <laughs> now watch this one. Now, by the way, Newtonian physics existed a minute ago when I threw the pen. And it still exists. Where do you reckon this is going to wind up? You ready? (laughs) Hopeless. Bloody Newton, idiot. (laughs) Hopeless at physics, that dude. Now, the difference is heavy things, relatively heavy, that are rigid. I won't throw my phone at you, relax. That are rigid. You don't really have to worry about fluid dynamics and air friction. But bendy things that are light, air friction, fluid dynamics is the main bit. 
So using a simple Newtonian model to kind of understand cannonballs or chucking a rock at a cat or whatever you want to do works for some problems and it's terrible for other problems. That's not a criticism of the model. It's a nice, simple little model that helps you solve some problems and is entirely inappropriate for other problems. So the fact that very, very, very simple economic models are hopeless at predicting what the Australian economy will look like in 20 years' time is not actually a criticism of economists. It's not actually a criticism, indeed, even of the economic model. But it's a fundamental criticism of either the economists or the bureaucrats or the politicians that are entirely inappropriately taking a simple model and using it to try and address an entirely, uh, entirely inappropriate problem and then suggest to the public that the model says we should cut company taxes. The model says we shouldn't have, uh, we shouldn't have a carbon tax. The model says we should get rid of penalty rates. Now here's the thing, that's not what the model says. And this is the main point, that's not what the model says. That's what the model assumes. So what these models, what these black boxes do, is they actually have hundreds, sometimes thousands of assumptions in them, assumptions about how different parts of the economy work. So imagine you had a model that assumed that cutting wages led to an increase in employment. You with me? Imagine you had a model that assumed cutting wages led to employment. If you were to ask that model what would happen if you cut wages, can you guess what it might say? <laughs> You're laughing, but this is what our public debate has come to. The, the economic modelling used to justify mines that communities don't want, penalty rates that we've had for a century or a big cut to the corporate tax rate are based on a bunch of assumptions. Now, they might be really good assumptions. They might be empirically valid assumptions based on 30 years of data and widely agreed by a broad economic community. Or they might be the modelers and they might be top secret. They might be commercial in confidence. And to ask what the assumption is would be an insult to the professionalism, nay, the integrity of the person telling you that the model says this and the model says that. So the assumptions on which these models are built are very, very important. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, most people have heard uh, in New South Wales in particular in the last decade that if particular big projects, ooh, go ahead, that's me. Um, if particular big projects go ahead, mining projects are ones that I've had a lot to do with, that uh, if the mine goes ahead, thousands of jobs will be created, especially indirect jobs. Indirect jobs. Anyone ever, ever heard people talking about the indirect jobs and multiplier effects? Don't get me wrong, it's possible. The implication is that in spending a billion dollars on building a new mine, sure it might only create a couple of hundred jobs in the local community, but 
those mine workers, what they'll do is they'll spend their money in the local community. Is this sounding familiar? They'll go to shops and they'll create all these indirect jobs. And that's really unique to mining because what happens when you pay nurses or teachers is they, they take their money and they, they flush it down the toilet. <laughs> it's gone. It's, it's, only, it's only mining workers or insert industry that paid a consultant here workers that create these indirect effects. Now, one of the key assumptions, I'm not making this up, one of the key assumptions in the use of these what are called input-output models or multiplier models, one of the key assumptions is that there's a large pool of highly skilled unemployed people sitting around hoping someone creates a job for them. So that when these models were used in the middle of a mining boom, in the middle of the mining boom's geographic centre in the Hunter Valley, when small mines were proposed in the middle of a mining region, in the middle of a mining boom, the economic modelers were assuming that if the mine went ahead, all of the unemployed mine workers would get a job and lots of jobs would be created. Except there's this thing in economics about scarcity. Scarcity is actually what economics is all about. And what usually happens when you put a new project into a booming part of a booming economy is that one sector draws resources away from another sector. Now, to give you some sense of the scale and significance of this, Rio Tinto, you might have heard of them, little mining company, don't really have much access to expertise, um, commissioned some consultants who concluded that if the Walkworth mine extension in the Hunter Valley went ahead, 44,000 jobs would be created. 44,000 jobs would be created. I grew up in the Hunter Valley. There's half a million people up there. It's 10% of the population were going to be employed as a result of the extension of a small existing mine. My colleagues and I from the Australia Institute argued in court that we weren't sure exactly how many jobs would be created, but I thought about zero. <laughs> so you can see there was a bit of a disagreement about orders of magnitude. We won. We won that case. Um, the judge accepted that there wasn't a pool of highly skilled mine workers in the middle of a mining region in the middle of a mining boom sitting around hoping a mine extension would go ahead. So, of course, Rio Tinto appealed and they lost. So then they did what they're really good at and their head of coal flew from London to Sydney and the Premier met them and the law was changed and now the mine's going ahead. Um, that's true. But let's be clear, no one's pretending it's going to create 44,000 jobs anymore. In fact, after the court found it would create zero, guess what? Still got to build that mine. Right? The court accepted that no jobs would be created. Indeed, the mining industry, and this is important, the mining industry now accepts in court under oath that building big mines doesn't create any or certainly not many jobs. But lying to journalists might be fun. Lying to a judge is a crime. So in court, they don't make these silly arguments anymore. 
in public, they make them every single day. And economists perpetuate them, politicians perpetuate them, bureaucrats who should know far better perpetuate them. So let's be clear, input-output models have a role to play, they're sometimes a bit handy, but for small projects when there is idle labour, they might tell you something about indirect job creation. For huge projects where there's no idle labour, they're a complete waste of time. But complete waste of time didn't mean wasn't taken seriously by courts for a decade in New South Wales. Another simple example uh, of, of this, the Adani Carmichael mine in Queensland, one of the world's biggest coal mines. If you went to the top of Sydney Tower and you looked to the horizon, you could not see further than that mine or dig a hole. 45 kilometres long is one new mine that we want to build in Queensland. But according to Dr Jerome Farr, Head of Economic Modelling for Ace Lallan, building the world's largest coal mine will, and I'm not joking, lead to a reduction in the world's supply of coal. A reduction in the world's supply of coal. Ask me in Q&A how they get there if you really want to know. But it took weeks of digging through their incomprehensible modelling report to figure out that they were actually arguing that building a new mine, rather than pushing the price of coal down and hurting all existing coal mines, would have no impact on price because it would lead to a reduction in the supply of coal. Complete nonsense. But who would know? It's buried in a nice big fat report. Again, under oath in court, they'll admit this stuff. Ring them up and ask them, they'll tell you it's commercial inconfidence. Now, the significance of this is this sort of modelling is used all the time in what passes now for our public debates. It's not just whether a, a mine should go ahead. As I said, the centrepiece, the centrepiece uh, of, of, of this election that we're currently in is the argument that cutting the corporate tax rate will lead to an increase in investment. That's an assumption. Cutting the corporate tax rate will lead to an increase in investment. That the increase in investment will lead to no reduction in unemployment. That's an assumption. That the increase in investment will lead to an increase in productivity of everybody. That's an assumption. And that when we all become more productive, our bosses will all pay us higher wages. That's an assumption. You probably should have been laughing at each of them, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad at least one of them didn't ring true. Because only one of them has to be wrong. Only one of them has to be wrong for the model to be wrong. So when, let's, let's work this through. We, we cut the corporate tax rate and Cole says, oh, wow, I feel like investing in more labour-saving technology. I'm going to install more self-checkouts. When I install more self-checkouts, my lucky workers instantly go and get re-employed at higher wages. Because when I, Coles, invest in new capital, we all become more productive. And even though there's five years of empirical evidence saying that wages don't grow when productivity grows, the model says this time it will. So the model assumes that cutting the tax rate will lead to an increase in investment. It might not. 
The model assumes that workers who are displaced by new capital are instantly re-employed. They might not. The model assumes they're not only instantly re-employed, but instantly re-employed at higher wages. You've got to understand this is why the right can't understand why anyone ever proposes their reform agenda. They just want to help poor people get better jobs. <laughs> sure, it might seem convoluted to cut the corporate tax rate first, but the model says low-paid workers will get a wage rise. Now, for the economists in the room, you'll enjoy this, I hope, in a CGE model, a computable general equilibrium fancy pants model, there's, only, there's no marginal tax rates. There's an average tax rate. Now, that doesn't mean much to most people, except that hopefully you understand that the amount of tax you pay on the last dollar that you earn is actually different from the average amount of tax you pay, because there's a tax-free threshold and there's low rates in the progressive tax system. And in economics, one of the first things we teach people in first-year economics is that rational people make their decisions on marginal costs and marginal benefits. Smart people that have done economics don't worry about sunk costs, they don't worry about, they don't cry over spilt milk, we just think about marginal costs and marginal benefits. And this is drummed into economic students and there's some usefulness in it sometimes, like, all, like a Newtonian physics model. But again, for the economists in the room, apologies for the non, we simultaneously have a model that assumes that all agents are rational, yet they're making their labour supply decisions based on an average tax rate, not a marginal tax rate. It's a complete contradiction. But don't worry, it's buried in the model. And who doesn't like a model that says cutting taxes for powerful people makes poor people rich? I mean, who could argue with a model that good? And that's win-win, isn't it? So the assumptions that are buried in these models are in some sense abstract, in some sense they're a bit theoretical, the kind of things that economists could have a bright royal seminar about, you get really heated. But the consequences of these assumptions are really important because despite the fact that we live in one of the richest countries in the world at the richest point in world history, we can't afford to spend more money helping disabled people. We can't afford, I'm told, to spend more money uh, helping sick people or old people. We can't afford to help young people, uh, young people who live in regional areas. We actually wanted to deny them access to unemployment benefits for six months because we were so broke. Yet according to the model, the best way to help all those people, the sick, the disabled, the poor, the unemployed, is to first cut the tax rate. For, 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 for companies in Australia and then the benefits will trickle down. And when we start talking about trickle down, everyone thinks that's complete crap, which is of course why they talk about growth dividends, because no one knows what that is. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I wrote about Econobabble recently, because we, we use bizarre economic jargon in the middle of our public debates and we use it to keep people out of those public debates in the same way that, that, that Catholic priests once preached to the masses in Latin, not to persuade, but to silence. We have non-economist politicians talking to non-economist voters in the language of economics. Why do you think that is? 
Is it to persuade? Or is it to make people think, oh, I didn't understand that, but everyone else seems to? Now, I know you're smart, but the person sitting next to you I'm a bit worried about. <laughs> so maybe when you're asking me a question later, ask on behalf of the person sitting next to you, because most Australians seem to accept that when we have these public debates, that rather than say, excuse me, politician, I didn't understand a word of that, sounds like crap to me and I won't vote for you until I understand it, we actually all nod, oh yeah, the growth dividend, yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to be opposed to that. So the, the models that we've got have led us, uh, you know, I guess for me the, the models are the most extreme version uh, the most extreme version of the econobabble because not even professional economists usually can understand it. It takes me weeks to get to the bottom of this stuff and I, I'm still shrugging my shoulders at a lot of it. No, no politician understands it. Most professional economists don't understand it. But that's the point. So to, to recap before I talk about where to from here, to recap Having simple models that help us make sense of the world is not a fundamental problem. Uh, if you look at a street map or a campus map, it's a massive simplification. It leaves out all sorts of things. A tourist map highlights features that a, uh, that, that a Gregory's ignores. Uh, if you want to know where not to dig, <laughs> if you want to know where not to dig a hole so you don't hit a pipe or a wire, there's entirely different maps. A map needs to be fit for purpose. A map is not a replica. It's a tool to help you understand where you are and how things connect with each other. That's all a model is. A model is an economist's attempt to say, look, when wages go up, people usually spend more money. And when people spend more money, that might create jobs for other people. But similarly, if wages go up, some, some people might get priced out of the market. Some businesses might say, we can't afford to pay those wages. These two effects happen simultaneously. And Jeff and other economists in the room, we've been arguing about this for hundreds of years now. Not Jeff personally. <laughs> but the point is, you know, my, my profession has been having this fight for hundreds of years for the simple reason we're not quite sure how it works. But when you build a model, oh, I know exactly how it works. But don't you worry about it. That's all a bit complicated for you. I'll just tell you what the answer is. So garbage in, garbage out is a pretty well understood concept, whether it's computer program or economic model or anything else. If our assumptions aren't any good, the conclusions aren't any good. When, people, when you hear people say, the model shows this, you're hearing someone who either doesn't understand what a model is or a liar. Because the models don't show things. The models don't prove things. Right? All the model does is take all the assumptions that someone put into them and spit them out again. So if you've assumed that increasing wages uh, leads to a reduction in employment, the model can't show that increasing wages reduces employment. You can't. It's logic 101, which of course has nothing to do with economics. So the garbage in, garbage out critique is, is valid for all models, but what economic modelling has become 
And I'll start to wrap up here, even though no one's waved at me yet. Uh, I think I must be about to run out of time. Uh, am I? Oh, you were waving. Oh, I didn't even see it. These people are much more interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so the fact that there's problems with modelling, not a problem. The fact that there's simplifying assumptions, not a problem. The problem is twofold. One, that we've actually replaced what the model says and a public debate about what the model says with what do we want? What do we as a society want? We are lucky to live in one of the richest countries in the world the world has ever seen. Is there poverty in Australia? Yes. Is there disadvantage in Australia? Yes. Could we do more about it if we wanted to? Yep. Does that sound like the sort of thing we might want to talk about in an election? No. Nah. <laughs> Let's have a good go at what the model says the company tax rate cut will do. The model is defining our debate both in terms of the variables we're allowed to talk about and answering the subjective and unknown questions about and what will that mean for us in a year, in five years, in ten years' time. We have this farcical situation now where the one thing we know from the budget papers in the last 20 years, the one thing we know is that the four-year forward estimates, the out years, are out. They're crap. They're always wrong. And that's fine, because we don't know what the interest rate will be in six months' time. We don't know what the oil price will be in six months' time. We have no idea, no idea what the exchange rate will be in six months' time. So we shouldn't be too surprised that four-year projections about the economy and the budget are out. But what have we done with this realisation that our four-year out years are out? Well, now we talk about ten. <laughs> oh, well, my 10-year projection says this. Who cares? The one thing, the one thing the budget papers tell us that's very, very important and very, very accurate is last year, what did we spend our money on? And next year, what are we planning to spend our money on? And the decimal places in that are pretty spot on. And if the budget papers tell you we're spending less on health and more on defence, I reckon it's pretty safe to say we're spending less on health and more on defence. Right now, this year, that's what we're planning to do. Oh, but let's not talk about boring stuff like this year's priorities. Let's have an argument about what might happen in 10 years' time. We've had five prime ministers in five years. Time, in five years. It's ridiculous. So let's talk about the future because that actually is an excuse to ignore what we're doing in the present. Because what we're doing in the present is ignoring that there's 730,000 unemployed people and no one wants to increase the dole. We can pretend that being one of the richest countries in the world we can't afford to address indigenous disadvantage. Bizarrely we get to say the intergenerational report tells us that we should be really worried about the age pension in 50 years but don't worry about climate change. It's a bit weird, really, isn't it? So where to from here? Again, the existence of simple models with simplifications is not a fundamental problem. The abuse of them is a fundamental problem. Replacing public debate with bizarre economic debate that few of its participants understand is a problem. 
But on a concrete level, I think there's two things that we can do as, as citizens, as voters, uh, as people with agency in a democracy. Um, first and foremost, we have to never let economics, let alone economic modelling, tell us what we're allowed to debate. It's a democracy. There's nothing in the Constitution that says uh, that the tax-to-GDP ratio has to be 23.9% or lower. We've just seen a remarkable abuse of our democracy. The Secretary of Treasury and Secretary of Finance have just jointly written a letter telling us what our tax-to-GDP ratio should be. Why? Unelected bureaucrats telling us, like experts, Seriously, I don't, I'm not questioning their expertise, but I could if you gave me another hour. Um, <laughs> but on, on whose behalf are secretaries of Treasury and Finance telling you in an election period what the responsible amount of tax to have is? That's a democratic question. It's not a bureaucratic question and certainly not an economic question. And the other thing to wrap up with, it seems a bit banal, but I think it's quite uh, potentially a useful thing to do, is we actually just need a code of conduct for people that want to wave economic modelling around. You can pick up a newspaper and read economic modelling shows this policy will cost X. Try getting the modelling. Ring the journalists. Can I see the modelling? No. Why not? It's commercial incompetence. It's on the front page of your paper. Yeah, but they won't let me release it to you. I'm not kidding. Right, we, we have public debate driven by economic modelling that you might not be able to read, literally get your hands on. If you could get your hands on it, you'd probably have no idea what it said. But what if we actually insisted that anyone that wants to wave modelling around with the view to influencing a government decision had to, A, do something radical, say, like, who paid for it? Do you remember the BS shrapnel? I got the first bit of that right, didn't they? <laughs> right. Who, who commissioned your attack on Labor's negative gearing policy? Oh, that's top secret. Can't tell you that, but you should trust my numbers. No, I shouldn't. So outlining who paid for it, not a very big step. Outlining what the key assumptions are and making sure that when key assumptions are made, that the person making them either tells you what the evidence, the evidence for that assumption is, or they tell you it's their gut feel. Because they're really the only two choices. When you want to make an assumption about a key economic variable, you're either basing it on data, which you should be happy to show me, or you're making it up. And if you're making it up, that's all right. You might have really good judgment, but don't pretend it's science and tell the reader, tell the audience that that's all you've done. Because assuming that cutting taxes for companies will make poor people rich is different from concluding it. And on that point, I'll conclude. Thank you. So Richard's kindly agreed to take questions. But before we have any questions, I'd like to point out that if there are any modellers here <laughs> who feel personally liable, we are on the premises of the University of Sydney Law School. Uh, okay, questions, comments? Thanks, there must be some modellers who feel liable. Up the back. 
I was just wondering why we as a society, I guess, Australian, uh, accept the modelling. Why we, why we aren't aggressive in asking and arguing um, against this type of uh, 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 presentations that the Liberal and Labor parties give us. Because I get the impression that somebody like uh, Hockey or Swan, when they're giving a, a lecture, uh, giving a, a press conference, that they're 10 minutes before they've shuffled into a room and said, now this is what I want you to say and it's called modelling. And they know nothing what they're saying. They don't understand it, but they use the words modelling. Yeah, look, and, sorry. Uh, you know, and you can see it. You know, um, I, 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 I'm an economist, sort of, <laughs> many years ago. But you can see that they know nothing about what they're talking about. And, and we accept that. Look, it's a good question, um, and I, I didn't stress this as much. I talked a bit about it last night. It's, it, it's a pretty new phenomenon, as I said at the beginning. There was no macroeconomic modelling wheeled out to justify the exchange rate changes. I think it's really the last 10 years we've seen this, and uh, it's just, I hate to say it, I'm not talking about you again, I'm talking about the person sitting next to you. Um, modelling's become, or had become, I, I'd like to think we've turned the corner, Modelling sort of became something that uh, that smart people demanded. There was a while there where press conference, oh, that's very interesting, you say that, Minister, but have you got the modelling to prove it? And the, the right answer would have been, nah. Nah. There'd be no point modelling that. We've got no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> but instead of pushing back and saying, well, you know what, you actually elected me to make decisions on your behalf. I've talked to people with expertise. I've talked to people with experience in the system. We think this is the right way to go and we'll monitor it. If it goes wrong, we'll stop it. We've gone, oh, yeah, let's give KPMG half a million bucks to go and project from trend. So, you know, I think, let's say five years ago, it's a bit arbitrary, but let's say five years ago, when, when pushed for, what's, where's your modelling to prove this is a good idea? Everyone went, oh, go get some. And now I feel somewhat sorry for the same politicians who show up with the modelling, and now the journalists are like, what's well, all crap, really, isn't it? So, so we're kind of stuck at the moment, but I, I think, you know, we've, we've turned the corner. Richard, it was a great idea that the modellers should disclose their assumptions. And why don't you ask the management of the university here, <laughs> why don't they insist on an ethical basis, the social scientists, to adopt the code of conduct of a natural scientist where they've got to publish uh, their research so it's reproducible and can be cross-checked. And I just think it's just quite untenable for any modellers under the ages of the prestige of the university to publish anything which they don't make explicit their assumptions like you requested. Yeah, and look, look, good point, but let me be clear that the academic modelers are not the, are not the biggest problem in this. The academic modelers might make some assumptions that I think are ridiculous, but they tend to be more transparent. It's, it's the big commercial modelling houses, the, the Acel Allens, the KPMGs, uh, that are kind of quite proud of, no, I'm, that's commercial incompetence and greater minds than yours have puzzled over this, so 
you know, piss off. Um, so, look, again, so I, I deal a lot with the academic modelling community. I, I find them forthcoming. They do want to publish their stuff in academic journals and they're, they're happy to have an argument about the strength of a relationship, you know, an, an elasticity or something. But uh, they, I, I should have been clear about that. I can argue with their conclusions, but I, I think they're far more transparent. But the, when when governments are commissioning commercial clients, uh, commercial modellers on our behalf, and then hiding the assumptions that are used to justify an answer back to us, that's where I think it's really pernicious. Thank you. Um, ah, hey, Roger. Hi, Richard. Enjoyed your talk. Um, I used to work on macro modelling years ago. I'll just tell you a few stories from there. Um, if you're doing any kind of budget, you have to have some idea what the economy is going to look like next year. Mm. So if you change something, what's going to happen? So I think there is a need for macroeconomic models. And about forecasts about one or two years ahead are quite often reasonable. And after that, as you say, once you go out five, ten years away, they're just crazy. Mm. Um, but like in all good models, you have garbage in, garbage out. So you have to look at the assumptions that are made. And in, when you forecast for one or two years ahead, typically, as you mentioned, implied was we assume the exchange rate doesn't change. It's the same as it was for the last three months or whatever. The interest rate is what it was for the last 12 months or three months and so on. We think the oil price is the same, et cetera, et cetera. So those assumptions are built in. But when the uh, Treasury and so on make their models, they have some estimates that are made over the past 10, 20 years. But then they use so-called judgment. Uh, given all the assumptions we made about oil price assets, they make some judgment because the numbers that come out don't quote, look good. So they say, oh, well, I'll just twiddle these things here and add this. They, they're called, I think, called uh, addition, subtraction. There's some technical word I forgot now. That they Residual adjustment. Residual adjustment, that's right. So then they add this and subtract this to make it look better in the future. Uh, the trouble is all this forecasting is based on the assumptions we made about that. But also we all know that if the world doesn't look like what it was the last 10 or 20 years, after the 2008 crisis, we know we can't predict anything. Mm. When everything's going smoothly up, as you said, extrapolation is easy. But when things suddenly turn, we're hopeless at it. Yeah. But the trouble is we still have to make some kind of forecast for one or two years ahead. But we should obviously specify what those assumptions were and what we made assumptions we made and what adjustments we made residual otherwise hmm. to those forecasts uh, look i agree and again really what i'm saying is not that we shouldn't do the best we can with the simple tools available to us what i'm saying is we need to be humble about what that means and we should stop pretending pretending that well the reason we can't afford to tackle climate change is my model says that were we to do so by 2049, the number of people employed in sheep farming in Queensland will have fallen by 372 people. Why do you hate sheep farmers so much? So, you know, this is the kind of banal version of modelling that we saw with the, with the carbon tax debate. So, no, no, to be clear... No, that's my point. To be clear, I agree with you that uh, there's nothing wrong with using the best numbers we've got to make our humble best efforts at a bit of a prediction. But if we were honest with people about that, then we'd leave a lot more room in democratic debate for people to say, well, given that we've got no idea what's happened and going to happen and can't possibly know, how about we do something crazy like look after my mum in aged care? 
don't use modelling to say we can't afford to. Oh, hello. Um, so you mentioned that prior to 1984, um, major governmental economic decisions weren't based on economic modelling as it were. But then you did mention that for time immemorial, uh, leaders have been using rhetoric such as Latin for priests to outfox the people. Hmm. Um, so it's all very well and good for us to be sitting here in Sydney University and to inquire about the, the, the progeny of a... Uh, uh, an economic model, but how do you suggest the average person um, makes inquiries as to the veracity of an, a, a politician's claim? Hmm. Um, yeah, look, very good question. Um, but I, I thought I, I touched on the answer, and that is simply that it, it's a democracy, and if someone wants your vote, they should be willing to explain to you in a language you can speak <laughs> why it is they think it's a good idea. Uh, so, you know, a, a big part of, you know, why I wrote Econobabble was to say you don't have to be an economist to, to call bullshit when you hear it. You're actually just allowed to... Look, if I'm talking to my accountant and my accountant tells me stuff I don't understand, I say, Ian, that's fantastic. I didn't understand a word of that, mate, and I'm paying you. So how about we just kind of back up there and you have another crack? And similarly, if you're in talking to a doctor and your doctor's doctor babbling at you, I really encourage you to say, well, this sounds like it might be important and I've got no idea what you're talking about, doctor, so how about you have another crack in English? Well, this is what we should be doing with economics. And, and I have this fight with my journalist friends, uh, of whom I have some. Uh, <laughs> never trust a journalist. Um, uh, because they say, oh, well, you know, it's not our fault, Richard. I say, yes, it is. Because if a physicist spoke physics babble, they won't put them on the news. Right? If, if you take a physical scientist and stick them in front of a television camera and go, blah, 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 jargon, words people don't understand, they go, oh, I can't put that on air. No one knows, understands a word of it. Some wannabe economist stands up and goes, blah, 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 all ordinaries, index, hung, saying something happened, market's angry. <laughs> and they're all, oh, well, yeah, markets are angry. Yeah, wouldn't want to upset the markets. So, you know, I actually think the media has an important role to play, but they've set up different rules. The rules for what the media will put to air are different for my profession than they are for almost every other profession I can think of. So, yeah, the ordinary Australian, well, we're all ordinary in some way, uh, probably ordinary in most ways. So uh, the fact that people don't understand economics doesn't delegitimise their vote in a democracy. And again, I think it's bizarre that non-economist politicians seek to win votes from non-economist voters through the language of economics. Like, if I didn't speak French and you didn't speak French, it would be odd for me to try to explain something to you in French. Hi, Richard. Um, I don't know much about commercial modellers, but there's one particularly pernicious assumption that almost all academic modellers use, and it's a very nasty one, and that's that in the long run, no matter what you do to the economy, no matter how you screw it up, unemployment will always go to the natural rate. So I remember when the GST was debated, all economists said, well, our models show in the long run there's no effect on unemployment. Well, of course, if you have a natural rate, no matter what you do, unless you blow the economy up, nothing's going to have any effect on the natural rate. Mm. So I wonder why you didn't mention that particularly pernicious assumption that no matter what you do to the economy, no matter how badly you stuff it up, you're never going to have any effect on unemployment in the long run because we're all going to be at the natural rate. 
Um, look, it's an evil question you posed to me, Peter. Um, I think Peter knows my PhD was in why it's a really crap idea to have a natural rate assumption in your macroeconomic model. Uh, but I refrained, I thought, admirably tonight from going down that little rabbit hole again. Uh, but it's a very important rabbit hole. So how's this for the non-economists in the room? Uh, in economics... We've got this thing. I just want you to listen very carefully. We have the full employment rate of unemployment. The full employment rate of unemployment. Which means, of course, the number of unemployed people you have at full employment. And you might have naively thought that that would be zero. Wrong. <laughs> So in Australia, we assume that there's a, there needs to be about 600,000 unemployed people at any point in time. We variously call that things like the full employment rate of unemployment or the NERU or the natural rate, and we argue about each other which ones to call it. But we actually are very comfortable. In fact, the, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia if the unemployment rate of the number of unemployed people fell catastrophically low to like 400,000 or 300,000 or 200,000, they'd increase interest rates. They'd cause some unemployment. This is what macroeconomic management means. Of course, all the econobabble allows us to simultaneously demean the lazy unemployment while well, we pay the head of the Reserve Bank a million bucks a year to make sure there's at least 600,000 or so of them at any point in time. And if unemployment falls, quote, too low, we slow the economy down by increasing interest rates. So, A, most humans don't understand that, which is odd because it's in full public view and has been for 20 years. That's why econobabble is necessary. Um, and then the kind of corollary of that is that, yeah, the, the modelling that Treasury has done to prove that cutting the corporate tax rate will increase everybody's wages literally assumes that there can't be any increase in unemployment. So let's be clear, if the model assumes there can't be any increase in unemployment, when Coles installs the auto checkout, what do you think happens to unemployment? Nothing. Because it can't. The model doesn't allow it. And for the economists in the room, they've used a comparative static model. There's not even a dynamic transition path. So these assumptions, like A, 600,000 unemployed is the same thing as everyone having a job, and policy shocks can't cause unemployment above the natural rate because we've assumed you can't have unemployment above the natural rate. These are non-trivial assumptions. And when you model a free trade agreement, when you model a wage change, when you model uh, a, a tax cut, when you model a carbon tax, when you make assumptions that there can't be an increase in unemployment, it somewhat limits the usefulness of the model for telling you what might happen to unemployment. But sorry for not going into it in a lot more detail, but <laughs> I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, Richard, I, um, I don't know much about economics models, not being economists, but I know that the uh, consumers of 
of, uh, or the objects of economic models are people. And people react to knowledge and they take in information. And models themselves and their outcome are information. So doesn't that make models wrong at the, at the same time, economic models potentially wrong at the same time they become part of public debate? Um, yeah, absolutely. But, but let me be clear, economic models always have been and always will be wrong. Like, they can't be right. <laughs> we just don't know enough about how the economy behaves. And as you said, actually how the economy behaves is a dynamic thing. But, so you're right, but I'm just saying you're, uh, the, the problems are, are far bigger and more fundamental than that. Um, but let me give you a hint, and, and most, most economists probably don't even know this. In, in these CGE models, the, the fancy ones, computable general equilibrium models, they have what's called a representative household. And what that means is, do you know how many households there are in a macro economy of Australia? One. <laughs> One household. And that household is the owner of all of the capital. <laughs> it's the supplier of all of the workers. And there's not really a government sector and the modelers have a few tricks, but if you ask them a straight question, they'll give you a straight answer. They don't really have a government sector in these CG models because all a government is is us acting collectively. Right? We all pay some tax into this institution that we own. It all gives us back some services. It's us. But if there's only one household in the model... The household and the government are the same thing. Now, this, and this is why, for example, there aren't any marginal tax rates in the CGE model. There can't be any marginal tax rates in there because there's just kind of one household. The whole thing, again, the fact that there are simplifications doesn't make it stupid. What's stupid is using the simplifications inappropriately. My one-liner is, these models are fine when used between consenting adults, all right? If I, no, I mean this, if I know what's in the model and you know what's in the model, then it can actually help us speed up a conversation, all right? If I know what the linkages and the assumptions are and you do and we change something and something unexpected happens in the model, we can both go, oh, I wouldn't have thought that had happened. Let's figure out why that happened. That can be useful. But when a model is used by someone who does understand how it works to confuse the bejesus out of people who doesn't, then that's stupid. It's not the model that's stupid, it's the use of the model. We'll make this the last question, but I'm sure Richard can cope with you coming up and having a chat with him afterwards. He looks fairly robust. <laughs> Thank you very much for the very interesting talk. Um, my question is really, what exactly can we do about this? Because it seems that the system is almost broken to a point because the private sector is writing these models to help itself grow more. Hmm. Um, there, it, it just seems like, you know, because politicians get a lot of their donations from private sector, that they're, they're almost seeming like they're working together uh, and avoiding helping the public, which is the majority of Australia. Yeah, look, good question, but I, I'd, I'd sort of break it up into sort of 
more bite-sized chunks. There's lots of problems with capitalism, there's lots of problems with democracy, and there's lots of problems with economic modelling. Fixing economic modelling won't make the problems of capitalism or democracy go away. But what I would say is that modelling has actually become a very effective tool for concealing the problems of both of those other systems. So I'm not for a minute suggesting, oh, if only we could get uh, sort of better economic models or more honest use of economic models, Mr Bluebird would be sitting on my shoulder and I'd be the happiest man in the world and everyone's happy. That's not going to happen. But these models are increasingly being used, particularly in Australia. Interestingly, they're not really that well used in most other countries. We're exporting this bad idea. It's true. It's very uncommon in most countries. Um, so... Fixing modelling isn't going to fix the fact that representative democracy often doesn't feel very representative. But I think democracy, you know, for all of its uh, problems, doesn't do a bad job of chucking people out when people hate them. And the models are increasingly used, I think, to conceal from people what the choices we face are, what the uncertainties we face are. And uh, I think, as I tried to say, there are some simple things that we as citizens can do or as academics can do or as people interested in policy can do. Uh, and that's really just to engage perhaps a bit more forcefully in debates and say, well, look, why, when you say the model says we can't afford to do something, did you mean the model assumed we can't afford to do that? Because you don't have to be an economic modeller to flip whatever they say about conclude into assume. You don't have to be a, an economist to say, I'm confused, how come when we were so much poorer we could afford to have universal health systems than now when we're so much richer? Now, that just blows my mind. Right? GDP's doubled in the last 30 years and we can't afford to do things we used to do. Does that seem odd? <laughs> Right, so we're not allowed to ask kind of naive questions for fear of not being sophisticated enough with our modelling. My point is that sophistication is a fraud. So, uh, so demanding transparency and accountability of people doing modelling and people commissioning modelling, demanding that politicians who wave modelling around be able to answer simple questions about it. If you want some optimism, please just Google Stephen... Long, ABC economics writer, Jennifer Westacott. Just Google that and listen to 10 minutes of laugh-a-minute disaster as one of the most highly paid corporate lobbyists in Australia couldn't answer a simple single question about how economic modelling justified the cut in the corporate tax rate. Seriously, like it's just 10 minutes for me I'm a bit sad, but, you know, of, of the kind of most fun you can have listening to the radio. Just get some popcorn and listen. Um, but, no, I, I mean this because it actually shows that when a journalist is brave enough to say, what? What? That didn't make any sense. Say it again. <laughs> and listening to someone try and remember what they just said. You know, or she's, oh, well, and then we'll cut the tax rate and productivity will go up and then wages will rise. But hasn't the last five years of data shown there's no link between 
increasing productivity and wage growth? Um, I'd still like to assume there will be soon. <laughs> My point is you don't have to, and Stephen's a very good journalist, but he's, he's not a professional economist, he's not an economic model. He was just a journalist that was brave enough to ask some important but simple questions. So we don't have to have a kind of highfalutin academic fight about it. We just need to say, hang on, on what basis are you making that claim? Um, so, look, on that note, uh, thank you all very much for uh, coming along. And um, if, if you want me to rant at you angrily, Twitter and Facebook are available to you. Uh, but I do have to... Uh, Frank Stilwell was here before he had to go. Frank was my PhD supervisor. And that was not a fun period of my life until I found Frank. Uh, and my PhD, as I said, was on this stuff. And um, Peter Chrysler's over there and Jeff Harcourt's here and Raja was one of my examiners. So um, I've... No, I've had a lot of support in kind of getting my head around this stuff. I haven't figured it all out. I like communicating it to people. But, you know, we know this stuff. Economists know this stuff. You know, I haven't discovered this stuff, but I do like to try and engage people with it, and I'm, I'm lucky to work at a think tank that pays me to do that. So, uh, so thank you all very much for coming along. Uh, thank you to you guys. And um, So in, in thanking Richard on your behalf, I'd like to point out, you'll recall that he remarked that we'd had five prime ministers in five years, which sounds very much like the Italian model. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much.